0: Hello, and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Sherjarko, and in this episode, I was joined by the great Eli Barraza to discuss one of our favorite films, Pan's Labyrinth. Eli brought so much insight to the table with this one, so I really think you're going to enjoy it and learn a bunch about Guillermo del Toro, Spanish history, maybe Spanish wine, and this film. There are some spoilers for the movie, but personally, I think knowing some of the plot of Pan's Labyrinth doesn't necessarily spoil the experience of watching the film. So even if you haven't seen it, you may enjoy this conversation, and maybe listening will inspire you to watch it or rewatch it. Make sure you follow Eli on Twitter to see all that she's up to. Her Twitter handle is in the show notes. Thank you so much to our newest patron. Leah Williams, who can definitely see the magic in the world, and to our producer-level patrons Emma Cohen, Rena Saramé, Zoo Yorker, Caitlin Van Horn, and Michael Beck, all of whom I would take with me to the underworld. If you would like to join these magical beings, come check us out at Patreon.com/PairingPodcast, where you can get access to all sorts of extras for as little as one dollar a month. Also, this is technically our third year anniversary episode, so happy three years to pairing! We premiered on February 14th three years ago, and though I recently took a three month hiatus, it feels good to celebrate. We also recently just surpassed 50,000 downloads, which may or may not seem like a lot, but it makes me so grateful to all of you for listening. So a big thank you to everyone who has contributed to the show, either by being on the show, helping me on the production aspect, or just listening. You've all made it possible for pairing to go on this long, and it just warms my heart that I've been able to make this show, and I'm very excited for what's to come next. So cheers to all of you without further ado here is episode 75 Pan's Labyrinth with Eli Barasa I am so excited to welcome to pairing for the first time um, my my friend and Comrade in arms in the podcasting world, Eli Barraza. Welcome. Hello, hello. Long time listener, first time caller. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. (laughs) So cheesy, but it's true. I love listening to this show. So being on it is so exciting. Thank you so much. Well, I'm so excited to have you on. I'm a huge fan of all that you do. So I am super excited to talk to you. Um, talk to you just about anything, but specifically to talk to you about Pan's Labyrinth, which... Or El Labyrinth del fauno as it is known. <laughs> I just rewatched the movie last night and the... the ugh, So many feelings, but the the guy who does the voice of... The narrator and the fawn uh i love his voice his voice so is incredible and when you yeah. hear um doug jones speaking spanish and the behind the scenes you're like yep yeah, there was a reason why they got someone to voice over him bless his heart bless his heart i love doug jones i um wanted to give a big shout out to him because he's an incredible performer but i i didn't realize that he even like that it was a possibility at one point that he was going to be to like speak in spanish um yeah well he really dedicated himself to at least learning the lines because he realized his scene partner was a child and he's like okay i know i'm being dubbed over but i can't just be saying one two three four for the mouth movement for this little kid who has to be acting off of me so he like memorized the lines and like it's it's really impressive what he did even if his spanish does not sound great yeah. <laughs> Bless his heart. Bless his heart. So, yeah. So, you suggested talking about this, and I was like, oh, my God, yes, I love I love this movie. But so, I wanted to start off by asking you, um, what was your experience of seeing this movie for the first time? I actually can't remember. It's a movie that yeah. feels like it's always been a part of me. I I th- sure. I think I might have seen it in theaters, because I would mm-hmm. have been around... Middle school when it came out, which I think is like the perfect time to see this movie. Yeah, I was a I was a little older Mm -hmm. and I do I do remember distinctly seeing this for the first time. I didn't see it in theaters. Sadly, I really wish I had. But I actually I I believe it was my senior year of high school that I saw it. it was maybe a little after it came out. But. Uh, I had a friend who was doing a year abroad at my high school, and she was Spanish. And so she she came over to my house, and we watched this movie together. And I remember being almost as emotionally distraught watching it for the first time as I was last night, um, but just, like, totally loving it. Because there is something r- truly unique about this movie and about Guillermo del Toro's movies, generally speaking, I would say. Um, oh yeah, I mean his combination of like r- brutal realism yeah. with the fantastic mm-hmm. is, you know, is so fascinating to pull apart because even though they're so different they still feel emotionally like the same thing. Absolutely. And and to me this this story, I mean the stories he comes up with his original stories at least. Um cuz I also love, you know, like his Hellboy movies, you know. They're <laughs> yeah. they're super fun. Um but 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 like this and The Shape of Water, to a certain extent, they're so strange and clearly like coming out of his imagination and just like, I always watch these. I'm like, ah oh, I wish I could come up with stories like this. Well, it's fascinating because, you know, his imagination is so wild. I mean, take one look at his notebooks and like the drawings yeah. are just incredible. But he's also in such conversation with mm. everything that has preceded him you know yeah. he he is just so knowledgeable about not only you know stories but also like paintings and music and you know basically just the way we all communicate not just with each other but across generations absolutely and I think that's what gives his work just like such incredible texture and weight because yeah. it is that conscious conversation going on, on. Absolutely. I think that's that's a really brilliant way to put it. And one thing I was wondering, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, one of the things I was thinking about that I hadn't thought about in a while watching this movie was that, you know, for I I wonder if you had this experience, too, but I feel like I did not learn much about Spanish history Like in high school, college, like I don't think I learned that. Like, I don't think it was focused on in like my history classes. Like, I didn't really learn about Franco and the regime there. Um, Yeah, I learned very little. Um And actually, I think that when I first saw it, I was a little confused because I thought it was the Mexican Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, my family is from Mexico. We have a lot mm-hmm. of stories about the revolution and whatnot. So I was watching it. Right. I was like, this just, this feels weird. Why does it feel weird? And then later right. when, you know, I learned, oh, it, well, it was the Spanish Civil War. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Everything is explained. <laughs> So what's interesting for me is that I actually I I did eventually in college get really interested in Spanish history and Spanish um, and like the Spanish Civil War on kind of not not on purpose. But I actually took a bunch of theater classes um, that had to do with with Spain and kind of Spanish art and Spanish theater. Um, so, you know, I, I learned a lot about Federico Garcia Lorca and then I actually took a class in Spanish from one of my favorite professors ever, um, Antonio Gonzalez. And uh, and he was like a big theater nerd, but he was a Spanish professor. So he like loved me. <laughs> and Amazing. I, I know. It was so, it was such a delight. But I took a class on Spanish theater, like since the death of Franco um, in Spanish, which was challenging, but really really interesting. So yeah, I was just that, that's sort of sort of a sidebar but sort of connected to my question that I don't know if you know the answer to, but so I was really embarrassed. I had I had the opposite experience. Um I was really embarrassed because for the longest time I assumed that Guillermo del Toro was from Spain. Um and You know, that's a valid uh thought <laughs> to yeah. be honest, especially looking at his other works. Like Devil's Backbone yeah. also takes place in Spain, so. right? Right. So I, I felt. I mean, I felt so dumb when I found out that a few years later that he that he was Mexican. But uh, I couldn't really find out like what inspired him to tell this story. Um, like I, I, I sort of read about his inspiration for the fantastical elements of it, um, but I don't know what what made him want to tie that into this story of the Spanish civil war. It works perfectly, but. Exactly. And it's funny. Cause I've been doing like a lot of reading. I, I, I have the criterion collection, mm, awesome. Pan's Labyrinth. So yes. I was watching all of those <laughs> bonus features, yes. you know, it. yes. Uh, and, and you know, you're, you're right. Like he talks a lot about the inspiration for the, the fantastic and how he blends it with the realism and whatnot. Um, and I think you know, maybe he's just interested in that yeah. part of history. Sure. And I and I will say, um, in Mexico and and I think broadly Latin America, but yeah. I'm only gonna speak to Mexico. Sure. There is definitely um much more of an emphasis on like Spanish colonialism. I mean you can look at that like in the colorism that totally. occurs within the country. Mm-hmm. Um you can look at, you know, how like what voices are lifted up and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I think because of colonialism, there is an inherent, um, like interest that is cultivated in Spanish history as sense. well as Latin American history. So to me, like, I I wasn't necessarily looking for a specific reason why right. he chose the Spanish Civil War, um, because I was like, yeah, that that tracks. There doesn't <laughs> have to be. There doesn't have to be a reason. Um, yeah, but it was just it was just interesting. It's just interesting to me that that's, you know, this is that's the setting because because ostensibly, yeah, I mean, you could have maybe placed this in the Mexican Revolution or a different place. You know, it it, it is a kind of parable format that can could yeah. have been applied to other to other well, historical events. But and I think it is placed very well. In the Spanish Revolution, simply because it is very much based on on more European folklore than it is, say, um, like Mexican folklore. That isn't to say, like, you can't see those influences watching Penn's Labyrinth. Even Del Toro says, like, you can tell this is a very Mexican movie, even Mm -hmm. though it's about Spain. And that's kind of what I I love about the movie is that Mm -hmm. it's this mishmash of so many different worlds and perspectives, like, all in one. Yeah. And I think that's why so many different people really connect with it, because it's just applicable across the board. Absolutely. No, I think that's really that's really true. Uh, So I wanted to tie in my first little wine connection, um, which is I'm going to be talking mostly about Spanish wines, I think, because because obviously this movie takes place in Spain. But also um, I think it's a nice opportunity to talk about them because I do think that Spanish wines often get overlooked and we don't. I mean they're they you know, at this point Spain is considered, you know, one of the great wine producing regions, though uh, sidebar, Mexico is actually an up and coming wine producing region. Um Ooh. more more on like a global scale. Um, so that's exciting. There are some really really great wines coming out of Mexico now. I mean, they're probably always they probably were always making them, they're just getting exported now. Yeah. Um, but so but so, uh, you know, like I was talking about, you know, I feel like, you know, in in terms of my education, like I feel like it like the Spanish Revolution, the Spanish Civil War got really glazed over, which is which is a bummer cuz it's a really interesting history yeah. and and I don't know if you've been to Spain, but I've been to Spain a, a couple times and it still feels like they're still kind of recovering from I mean, it wasn't that long ago that uh you know they they were under a fascist government so yeah um so it's a it's a very interesting place um but i love spanish wines and so i wanted to <laughs> talk a little bit about spanish wines um and so i wanted to ask you cuz we're both we're both drinking um i believe spanish wines yes and so i wanted to ask you what what you're drinking because okay Let's see. Okay, so ooh. ooh, I rec I recognize the the, <laughs> the producer already. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited because I was like, oh, I hope Emma approves. Even though you've made yeah. it very clear, like <laughs> you know, wine snobbery is not welcoming. Yeah, I was like, oh, I hope I hope she likes what I pick. I already out. approve. <laughs> so yeah, so it says Avancia Cuvé de O, uh-huh. um, and I want to say. Godeo, but I Godeo, Gode- Godeo, yes. Godeo, okay. I am so um, stoked that you got a Godeo because it's one of my favorite, super overlooked wines from Spain. Um, oh, amazing! Yes, oh, uh, so so good. Um, so do you do you like it? I, you know, let me take another sip. Yeah, I've only had a couple. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I really like it. I prefer. White wines, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And part of me was a little sad because I feel like a red wine matches the sumptuous feast of the pale man so well. But I was like, you definitely. know what? I'm going to drink what I enjoy. Yes. No, absolutely. Um, and I just, it, it tastes fresh. It's It tastes a little fruity. Mm-hmm. And and that's just really what I love about it. And it doesn't taste like church wine, which is always the <laughs> risk you run with uh, white wines. I was raised Catholic. I so love that's, uh, where oh, that comes from? Oh, great! Because I I had some some thoughts about kind of the Catholic influence also in this movie, and so I'd love to get your perspective on that. Um, Sweet, but uh, but that makes me so happy. Godeo is one of my absolute favorite white wines, um, and and you know like like you were saying, this movie feels more like a red wine, and I think I think maybe overall that's maybe true because it is it is quite dark, and so. Drinking a red wine kind of feels appropriate, but, um, but you you followed the first rule of pairing, which is that drink drink what you like, um, <laughs> and so so that makes me that makes me super happy, um, that ties into one of one of the red wines that I wanted to talk about though, because Godeo comes from the northwest region of Spain. Kind of, I'm mm-hmm. actually I'm drinking an Albarino, which is my other favorite. Um, Spanish white wine. It's a little bit. It's usually a little bit crisper than Godeo A little bit. A little bit more acidity. A little bit, kind of. It. it almost has like a little salinity, like a little saltiness to it, because it's from. It's from the west coast there, the mm-hmm. northwest coast of Spain. But then, um, moving just a little bit inland, a little bit further east, you get to a region called Ribera Sacra, and that's where most Godello comes from. But also They're well known for a red wine called Mencia, or Mencia, if... Uh, I never know. I never know Oof. how much of a how much of an asshole to be <laughs> when pronouncing. Here's the thing. I am. I'm currently playing catch up, learning Spanish right now, and mm-hmm. obviously I'm learning very Latin American, yeah. Mexican, LA Spanish. Yeah. And so watching Which... *Pent* labyrinth, and you know they're like, "Oh, Mercedes." Yeah. I'm like, oh, I know. I know that's how they speak, but my brain is just not used to this. I personally, I'm. I you know, I I love I love Spanish of all all dialects and um mm-hmm. on all accents but personally i think the mexican accent is much prettier than the spanish accent but that's that's just me i won't know. i just like a sharp s sound i'm very partial to yeah, it yeah you know? yeah no it it takes it it, it it's really odd and and it takes some getting used to cuz even cuz i took spanish in in high school and college and um most of my teachers who were native speakers were spanish actually like were from spain oh but which is interesting and kind of strange Mm -hmm. i feel like i feel like that's unusual but 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 none of them had either they'd kind of dropped dropped that 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 f that Mm f um or or just like not every not everybody in spain speaks that way but it -hmm. is the it is the majority but anyway so i was talking about menthia or right. Uh so that's a red. That's a red grape. That's kind of like it's kind of like Spain's Syrah. I would say it kind. Of, it has some. It's not totally like Syrah, but it has some things in common. Like it's very earthy. Um, it's not always super full bodied, but it's got that kind of like earthy funkiness to it, mm-hmm. um, which I I really like. Um, and and I feel like Mencia is a good is a good red wine for this. For this movie, because it's very, I don't, I don't want to say bittersweet, because it's technically, you know, it's not a sweet wine or anything like that. But there's something, like, really lovely but also harsh about it at the same time, mm, mm-hmm. which I feel like is appropriate for this movie. And I just wanted to shout out one of my favorite winemakers in that region of Ribera Sacra, and her name is Laura Lorenzo. And she's she's just an awesome winemaker. She's really creative. Like I feel like in some ways she's like the Guillermo del Toro of of winemaking. <laughs> uh, we love to hear it. Yes, yes. And also just as as winemaking develops um, in in different countries, because it used to be such a male dominated profession, as mm-hmm. as everything is, um, there are more and more uh, women who women winemakers. Which I think is awesome, and so and so. Anytime I can, kind of promote one of them, I try to do that. And she is awesome. So that's kind of a a good a good jumping off point. Since we were just talking about it, I wanted I wanted to ask you because I this wasn't something that I necessarily thought about while I was watching the movie, but when I was reading about, you know, about things Guillermo del Toro said about the movie and what others said, he did mention because I believe. Um, Del Toro was raised Catholic, but he's basically atheist now. But he said something like, once, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. And so, and I'm, I'm half Catholic, but I, was, I wasn't really raised Catholic. My dad's Catholic, but I wasn't really raised Catholic. But I always feel this kind of connection to mm-hmm. uh, to Catholicism, um, not necessarily in a religious sense, but in kind of like a cultural, historical sense. I guess yeah. if that makes sense. I mean, um, I tell people I'm culturally Catholic at this point. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like I feel like that that makes sense. Um and so I um uh, but I was wondering, you know, since you were actually raised Catholic, um what do you see of those kind of themes in this in this movie, if if any? Um I mean it's interesting cuz you know, there's the story of rebirth and the mm. idea of Ophelia ca- like dying, kind of ascending back right, descending to the underworld and whatnot and sacrificing and also, herself so others can yeah. live and exactly. Yeah. And, and just genuinely like trying to be good to other people, even mm. if she is a child and, you know, children yeah. act out and of whatnot course. um. So I think there's definitely those kind of themes there. I also do think, especially the imagery at the end, felt like a Catholic cathedral where, you know, she's standing there facing her father and her mother. That's very Um, true. You know, and I think, you know, Catholicism, you know, very strong in Spain and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, so I think I think it's there. I actually it's so funny cuz like the only time I even thought about Catholicism was at the end yeah. of when it looked like a cathedral yeah. and the rest of the time I was just so entranced. And I think like the other idea too possibly of like the idea of of betrayal and I don't know. I almost feel like at times it the movie almost rejects Catholicism in a way yeah I, I I feel that too and I I read you know one kind of interpretation of the pale man which I did I did not get this when I was watching the movie but the pale man being kind of a criticism of the Catholic Church and like child abuse and mm-hmm. um I did not draw that connection but I I see that I yeah. I think for me the and th- this kind of came from watching some of the interviews that Del Toro did. But the idea of you don't do a good thing because of some promised afterlife. You right. do a good thing because it's it's the right thing to do. Right. Um, and you see that obviously with Ophelia deciding not to kill the baby. Right. Um, and you also see that a lot with um, Dr. Ferrero, who, who honestly seems like he... Even though he felt like it was hopeless, he was still doing the right thing helping the rebels. Right. You know? Yeah. And and especially when he tells um, Vidal, like, you know, the only type of people who follow orders is you. Yes. And and he leaves. And it's like, that's the type of thing, like, you know you're going to get shot. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful, it's beautiful and heartbreaking just watching him walk away. Mm -hmm. And you just know you know he's he's about to be killed and he knows it too and and it's it's so heartbreaking but you know he he did the right thing because that was the right thing to do and he dies uh as del toro said in the interview he dies with his face in the mud right you Mm. know yeah and i i think Mm. that there is something so important that this movie is saying with that where you know even if you're scared even if there is no promise of a better future you still do the right thing right um and that like <sighs> i feel like that was one of the parts that i cried. It was when oh, the actor yeah. died. Absolutely. Definitely. I, I I I cried when he when he died too. Um because it's it's very powerful. It it's mm-hmm. um just the the w- kind of simplicity of of that of that scene and that moment. And i think the actor who plays who plays him does a really great job of just being yeah. very very understated in it. Which it makes it all the more heartbreaking. Exactly. And, like, I don't know. it. It's interesting, too, to tie that into the idea of, like, inevitability, right? Mm, hmm Because it's it's almost like two conflicting things of, like, this inevitable end, but also these characters who don't know what the future holds for them and still do anything right. anyway. Because, I mean, the movie opens with Ophelia on the ground, blood leaking from her mouth. Yeah. You know she's going to die. It's yeah. It's very... It's very Grecian that way. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm, like it's mm-hmm. very like Oedipus Rex. It's very uh it's very Orpheus and Eurydice. Yes, yes. I'm a big Hades Town fan, and every uh, time I listen, yes. I'm like, maybe this time it won't go wrong. Yeah, I know. And I am a fool every time. <laughs> I know. And I, I've seen this movie several times, but I hadn't seen it in many years. And I was watching mm-hmm. it last night. And <laughs> and even even my brain that knows what's gonna happen, I was like, maybe Maybe I'm not remembering it right. Maybe she won't die. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nope. But nope. But at the same time, it's still so worthwhile to watch because even though it's inevitable, there's still value and beauty in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, th- th- I was actually so happy that I hadn't seen it in so long because mm-hmm. some parts still surprised me a little because I had forgotten them. Yeah, me too what so, what what stood out to you this this with this last rewatch well, i think having Penn's labyrinth so connected with my transition from childhood to adulthood mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. the parts that really stick out to me in my memory were obviously the fantastic parts right. um like that world was so enchanting and i was that kid who would go hide in my room and read fantasy books Till Me too. the wee hours. Yes. <laughs> and so I think those parts stuck out, and what was such a pleasure to see were the adults. Yeah. And—oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I just—I had the exact same experience. I, I'm, I, I agree completely. I remembered o- pretty much only the—I mean, like, you know, the fawn and the pale man are so iconic— and have mm-hmm. become so much a part of like our cultural kind of zeitgeist almost, and and I had I had forgotten, like I'd almost completely forgotten Mercedes' character entirely. Not 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 that she existed, but just like I forgot about everything that happens with her and her journey. And Maribel Maribel Verdú is the name of the actress who plays her, mm-hmm. I believe, and she's just so wonderful. And so that was really, um, that was really a pleasure to watch. When it I think what's so cool, too, is like the way that I interpret the movie is Mm -hmm. a clash of the worlds that people create around them. Right. Mm -hmm. So Ophelia, she has her, you know, this beautiful world she's constructed, whether it's real or in her head or not. Whatever you want to believe, that's that's up to you. But that is her world. And she sees everybody else's world so clearly and she accepts it. Right. Right? And I think the the big flaw of Vidal is that he has created his world by rejecting everybody else's. Yes. You yeah. know, his his is not a world of creation, it is a world of rejection. And yeah. I mean and that's why Mercedes can get away with helping the rebels is because she's right. so cognizant of the fact that like her is anything more than a helper. Yeah, like is rejected. Yes, and unfortunately, even she herself ends up rejecting Ophelia's world when right. the girl talks to her about fairies and whatnot. She says, "You know, like those aren't real. I used to, I used to believe in them, but now this is the world that I'm creating for myself." Right. Um. And and to me, I I found that so interesting. Of the idea, because, I mean, a film, you are literally creating a world for the screen. They, you are building sets. You are building right. characters. Yeah. And so to kind of have this tension between the characters be about what their own personal worlds are and how they come into conflict, to me, mm. was so interesting. And and especially also when it comes to um, Carmen, Ophelia's mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. How her her she the world that she created for herself was basically just accepting someone else's right. And when she tries to assert herself at the table, Le Fidal, um, he's like, "Oh, no one wants to hear about how we met. No one wants to hear about that stuff." Yeah, and it's yeah. like these women, your guests, just asked her, but right. once again, you are rejecting somebody else's world to assert your own. Yes, yeah. I also feel like in watching this as a as an. You know, adult now. I mean, I guess I was tech technically almost an adult when I saw it for the first time, but not really. I was a teenager. So, yeah. um, but as an adult, I I appreciated Carmen's story a a lot more too. Even though, you know, it's just it it you kind of I think feel for her more when you're older. Mm -hmm. and and her her situation because i remember when i when i first saw it i was like oh what is she what's she doing why she why did she drag her daughter into this horrible horrible abusive man's life um but as an older person you kind of can understand a little bit more of her logic and um and kind of the the need for for stability and support not saying that you know i would make the choices she made but yeah. um, but but it can at least kind of recognize them and uh empathize with them to a certain extent and it, and it's just so sad to see her make you know when she throws the mandrake uh root into the fire and yeah it's it's, it's i mean it's one of the more on the nose uh moment you know kind of metaphors but um But it's still like, oh, you're you are literally throwing away your life right now by choosing him over your daughter or yourself even. And uh, it's just it's so tragic. And especially because, you know, I feel like we get we only see the end of Carmen's story. We we don't really see any other part of it, because I think one of the the elements of her character that stuck out to me really was when she tells Ophelia call him your father it's just a word right yeah and she's telling her daughter who loves reading clearly words are far more than just Mm -hmm. a word right you know and and I think like there really lies the tragedy of of her characters that Mm she not only has like devalued herself but she's kind of devalued the relationship with her daughter in order for them both to survive. Right. Right. And you, and you can recognize that she thinks and wants to be doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. She wants to be doing what's best, but she's just not never choose fascism. It's (laughs) yeah. It'll get you every time. Yeah. It gets you every time. Um, But also speaking of, speaking of fascism, I, I, I also really appreciated, um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna forget his name, the actor who played Vidal. But uh, I Sergio he was, Lopez. Yes. Sergio Lopez. Yeah. Um he he was fabulous and terrifying and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like one of the one of the scarier uh film villains that i I've ever seen I think, and i i i I remember reading and I'm sure you 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 saw this too um that 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 he that actor before this movie was kind of like a comedian or or like a melodramatic actor mm-hmm. and there was a great quote I read where I guess the like spanish um you know spanish film industry professionals told del toro they were like you don't understand because you're not Spanish, but you might not want to cast him. And Del Toro says something like, it's not that I don't understand, it's that I don't care. Amazing. <laughs> I loved that. I was like, yeah, well, y- you cast him perfectly because he is terrifying. Terrifying. That's the thing. I feel like actors who do have a lot of experience in comedy can work the dramatic really well because, Absolutely. I mean, timing is everything in comedy yeah. and timing is literally everything for Vidal Yes, know? like that's he's, very he's always true. Got that broken watch with him. He is always right. angry when people are late no matter the reason. Everything yeah. has to run precisely as he desires it. Yeah, as the state desires it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's a great point. Um yeah, time for him is a very important theme. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I just I thought I thought he did a he did a great job, and I and and I also agree. I've always, I've always said you know comedy is way harder than drama, at least for me. Yeah. And so it, a great comedic actor can be a great dramatic actor way easier than a great dramatic actor can do comedy. Um, that's that's one of the things I I I think. Oh no, um, I agree. Every time I see like Robin Williams in a dramatic role, I was I like. Ugh. yeah (laughs) and even even jim carrey too like yeah yeah like eternal sunshine and and other other films like that but yeah vidal is just i don't know everything everything about him is so sculpted and like yeah i don't know curated yes like yes and his like his shaving as well Mm -hmm. uh like oh like that always that always gets me like (laughs) the scene where he shaves i'm like right before that you're you're pretty much clean shaven already, <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. But I guess, I guess um, that just the uh, up, t- you know, the upkeeping of appearances and mm-hmm. order is um, is is so important to him, you know, above all else. Yeah. And, the and the self mastery means yeah. mastery over others. Yeah and he literally i mean he's literally kind of the patriarchy embodied you know mm-hmm. about how he 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 does not really care what happens to his wife when he says to the doctor you know if it comes down to it save the ch- like save the boy so my legacy can live on and yeah. then at, and then at the end to have that all <gasps> destroyed it's so satisfying it's so satisfying when, and like and and going back to the whole idea of like yeah. people's worlds and like if they accept other mm. people's worlds they're creating whatnot like yeah. that's really the like that is the final straw the final rejection of like you know when he's like tell my son what time i died and mercedes responses he, he won't even know your name yeah it, it is the full rejection like nope everything you have built and created for yourself will die with you yep and it's just it's such a powerful moment it 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 really is. It really is. And uh, it, it is, you're right. It's the total rejection or destruction of, of this world that he created for himself. Like, and when he walks out of the labyrinth, you know, he knows he's about to die. He yeah. doesn't, you know, that he doesn't like try to plead or anything, Um, but he wants his legacy to live on. Because that's what's important is... Um, is his legacy more than more than anything else? When, and, and it's it's so interesting too, though, because like in a way he like denied his own legacy at the dinner. When yeah, the, when the that guest was like, "Oh, I heard your your father died and smashed his watch, so his son would always know what time he died." And then Vidal's answer is like, "My father never had a watch," but we yeah. know we know it's a lie, right? Right. I know it's so that that's a really interesting moment to me as well. It's like. What like are you ashamed of that or or, I, I yeah it's a it's an interesting interesting moment. To me, I think it's like he, I feel like he wants to assert that he's his own man. Yeah, yeah. That and, I guess that makes sense. I mean, because of the fact that his father was a general and he's just a captain. Right, right. Yep. Obviously. And then at the end, he tries to do pretty much the same thing his own father did with him, and that's when the rebels are like, you know, no, enough is enough yeah your your legacy has not helped anyone you are done yep like yeah even you know the idea of legacy is bullshit because you rejected it yourself yeah no i think that's true and i think that there's like vidal has a a great deal of denial as Mm -hmm. well in his character um and that 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 kind of carries through as well and that is part of his ultimate downfall is that he's really in denial about as you said, you know only the world that he can accept is mm-hmm. what exists for him, so you know he's he's not an unintelligent person, so he probably could have figured out much sooner that Mercedes and the doctor were yeah. helping the rebels, but he chose to deny that in a way, yeah, or, or not or not see it, yeah, he's a really interesting character i'm 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 always fascinated by villains in theater and books and and movies but when one is really well done and feels like a like i i 100 believe that this is a real person you know yeah like he's not he's not a cartoonish villain even if some of the things he does are cartoonishly evil you still believe that there are people like that in the world um yeah which is which is so scary um yeah I don't know. I was I was thinking of trying to give him a, a wine pairing, but I was like, no, I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to ruin a wine <laughs> by giving him a pairing. He for him he can have he can have whatever whiskey or alcohol he drinks at the end,
1: and mm, when oh. he's got the
0: cut in his mouth and it, ugh, that yeah. that's one of the more like visceral moments for me. Of, when he's of, he's literally. So for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, his yeah. cheek gets cut open and he has to sew it shut himself. Yeah. And then later, uh, he ends up drinking some whiskey and it, immediately it soaks through the patch he's put over the, the sewn yeah. shut cut. And it's yeah. just... And, it's, like, you know that's it's alcohol. Like, huh. Yeah, it's probably it's probably actually good that he did that for, you know, yeah. for the wound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that's why he does it. <laughs> no, no. And um, I mean, but at the same time it's also a good thing he drinks it cuz I think Ophelia by that point had had uh, dosed the whiskey, right? I forget if she dosed it then or after. Or after. Yeah. Yeah, it might be it might be after, I think cuz well cuz he 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 takes one one shot and then soaks through and then he yeah. pours himself another and then I think she and then she doses it, it. Yeah. yeah yeah ugh yeah that's one of the more like <laughs> ugh. and it, it's interesting how they did it cause they had the they put like a like the green screen tracker on his cheek and then they put mm. the um the prosthetic over it, and then mm-hmm. he was doing the sewing himself. And all the oh, makeup artists whoa. are like, "That's a real needle that he is using." Wow, like, what a brave actor! Yeah, doing that himself. <laughs> and I'm like, I like that man. Yeah, like, his his commitment really makes the character. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and by all accounts, he's like a very nice person in real life. so oh that's that's such a relief, <laughs> yeah, I know he I, I I saw I read something that he said about that character, and just and he was just like he is the like the most evil character I have ever played. and and he also points out, which I think is good, is that there's nothing redeemable about him. And yeah. I think that's it, it's important to not have him be at all redeemable. Yeah, because this, it it really is then just a, a rejection of fascism and everything that he stands for. Um, yeah, while in you know you know you see like certain certain World War Two movies where they try to make you like sympathize with the Nazis, and you're like, and it's like, no, nope. no, nope. no. Nope. I mean, it, it's one of those like, yes, I understand the motivations of this character. They right. are irredeemable. I don't care. Like this is. They made the wrong choice, yeah. and they have to live and die by that choice. Yep. That's it. Yep. Absolutely. So I do I do appreciate that Del Toro and this actor did not lean into making him at all redeemable or likable yeah. in any way. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you see that he is still human, and I think that yeah. was very important to, to basically be like... Yes, he is so evil and does cartoonishly evil things, but at the end of the day he is human just like you and me. Mm-hmm. And it is important to recognize that humanity is capable of this. And thus we must make active choices to to not go down that path and to reject it ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to go back to something, well, kind of jump off of something that you mentioned, which is the like prosthetic on mm-hmm. on his Um, on his mouth. And one thing that I did not realize was how much of the effects uh, in this movie are practical. Um, there is, there is CGI to a certain extent, but like that is Doug Jones in, in that, uh, fawn costume. And they, they, I think they like CGI'd his legs a little bit, but he's in like a contraption. That's him walking around. And it was it was interesting because in he once again watching all the behind the scenes, yes. he notes that it was one of the most comfortable uh, huh. costumes he had to wear because it is uh, it's made of components, so it's not all one suit. Yeah. Instead, there's like there's a chest piece, there's like a kind of a shoulder jacket piece, there are the pants, and mm-hmm. then. You know the whole fawn head, which was its own contraption. That, right. Like, and the only way he could see was through um the the tear ducts of the fawn. Oh face. wow, wow. Um, and then as far as the the feet, you know, because they they have that bend backwards part. Right. So right. So his his leg is going straight downwards, and so that was he was wearing the green screen tights. Mm. Um, so mm-hmm. they could erase that. Got it. Um. But he actually wasn't even able to really start forming the full character until he had the costume. So he could really work on the movement. And he was describing um, the scene where he gets angry at Ophelia. Yeah. um, And he is having to back up while speaking Spanish and delivering this entire emotional angry monologue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, it was the hardest thing I have ever done. Cause and then he has to like duck down into the darkness. At the yeah. End. And I'm like, how did this man do this? He's like, he's an incredible physical performer. Mm-hmm. Um, for for those who don't know, uh, some other other roles that he has done. The one that one that I always remember is uh, he's the oh my god, what's his name? But he's the corpse in Hocus Pocus that oh, they dig yes. up like Jonathan or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um and so he's he's phenomenal in that as well. And um and he is the the creature in the shape of water as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he's the creature in that. He plays yeah. Abe Sapien in Hellboy. Right, right. He he I don't know. It's like oh and he was he did some reshoots for Mimic and mm. was in the costume for that and that's how he and Del Toro met. Yeah. Oh and he's also he's on Star Trek Discovery now. Um I've oh. I've only seen a couple episodes so I'm not super familiar with what character he plays um, or what or what uh, alien creature he is, but he is some alien creature on, <laughs> on Star Trek Discovery. Um but yeah, I feel like he's he's like he found a niche in in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, kind of like I mean, I feel like Andy Serkis has moved beyond this at this point. He kind of does more more than just being like the CGI actor, <laughs> yeah. but he's kind of kind of like got an Andy Serkis thing going on. Um, but yeah, so he's he's and he's also the pale man for for those who don't know who's you know, maybe the most terrifying creature ever. Can I get like a little political for a second? Of course. Just like anytime. a dash. Yeah. Every time I see the pale man I just think of Mitch McConnell. Oh my God. Now I'm never gonna be able to unsee it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I'm that's So sorry for putting fine. that in your you head. Know, but like you it's, know it's true. Now that you mention it, I feel like I've seen memes out there like comparing Mitch McConnell to the Pale Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it, there is uh, there's a likeness. There's a likeness. <laughs> But yeah, and and it's interesting too, so he was the the pale man and then for the very first um task that Ophelia must do yeah. to get the key from the the, the, the toad. Frog, the yeah. toad. Um that was supposed to be in this big kind of tree cavern, and mm. the toad was supposed to jump around, and they were supposed to fight and whatnot, and they had literally built the cavern yeah. when the animatronic for the frog came in, or toad, and they yeah. realized it was too heavy to do what they needed it to do. Oh, no. So, like, on on Friday, they had one idea of what the scene was going to be, and by Monday, they had rebuilt the set. They had completely refigured everything to be in this, like, tight, claustrophobic space. Ugh. Because of the limitations of the animatronic, interesting. Which I honestly loved that it was in this very tight, scary yeah. space. That and very especially because it's like it's the type of space only a child would go into. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, I like that. I like that too. I think that worked. That worked really well, especially especially when you compare kind of the different fantasy settings that you see. Like that one is very dark and dank and tight and claustrophobic. The the pale man. Is kind of a little bit more open, mm-hmm. um, and but but very ominous and scary. And then you know, as you said, the, the the final scene where she's reunited with her family that does feel very open, like almost like a a, a big uh, church or something like that. Um, yeah. So. And even talking about the color theory of the film, like mm. they they've said that, you know, they wanted all the fantasy to be very warm, mm-hmm. like almost like the womb
1: mm-hmm. kind of idea, mm-hmm. and
0: then have everything else. Like Vidal's world is very cold and grey, right and, you know, and green. Um which I think I think works really well. And the fact that yeah. a lot of her trials are very mental, like she yes. has to really rely on her own instinct, versus the very physical world of the war that's going on. Right. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do have to say it gave me so much anxiety. Again, no know, knowing what was going to happen, but what when she gets the dress and and, and <gasps> yes. the shoes and she gets the shoes and the dress all dirty. I'm like, "Oh no." <laughs> and it was so sad cuz she put the dress, you know, on the yeah, brand. And cuz you're like this totally makes sense. Like I as a child have definitely done something similar where I I thought I was going to make my mom proud, and then I completely tanked it. Because yeah, I just yep. didn't have the foresight. Oh, there's a storm coming. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And she's trying to be conscientious, but but is so focused on on this on this task. Ugh, it's just, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking. But at the same time. The storm is actually fortuitous cuz it washes right. away any trace of her journey. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, I I I couldn't remember exactly how bad it went when I was like does she lose the dress entirely? Like is mm-hmm. like but but no, she gets it back and then her her mom is just upset with her. Um, things could have gone a lot worse in that. Yes. <laughs> in that yes. scenario. Um but but yes, the storm is the storm is very fortuitous, yeah. And I was just thinking about I I hadn't thought about um like this idea of being in the womb, um as part of like the fantasy world. But you do get that shot where she's telling her brother a story when he and you get mm-hmm. the shot of the baby in the in the womb, um and the flower, so, yeah. Yeah, and so that's that that is that is a theme, that is a through line. It is interesting though, the one the one part of the fantasy world that doesn't feel warm is the labyrinth. Um, yeah. But but it, I mean it's like a it's like the bridge between the two worlds. Right, right. It is. And so it technically it does, you know, it does exist as you see it. Um I again, yeah. whether whether or not you believe um her her world is real or not, which Yeah. Um, I like I personally like to believe it is um. <laughs> I, I think I mean for me like thematically I believe it's real it's yeah. only because I want to be the type of person that accepts the worlds of others yes absolutely And I don't want to be a Vidal and just reject it and also okay so I will say the analytical like the less emotional but more analytical part of me mm-hmm. is like well if her world wasn't real then how did she get into Vidal's room if she didn't have exactly the key? exactly it's real. No, there's it. I mean there there is like actual kind of proof, if you will, in in the or at least things that can't really be easily explained otherwise. Yeah. Um but yes, uh, I I I think so too and I think that's purposeful too on Del Toro's part of being like how how else would she get into that room if she didn't draw a magic door with chalk? Um, exactly and and at exactly. the same time you know like we were saying it it's still left open enough to interpretation yeah so absolutely um, but yeah also also with the the color theory going back to that really quickly yeah once, once again bringing up those bonus features absolutely uh, the Toro has said that you can see that warmth and color in the background as Vidal is going into the labyrinth mm. um and that is the the fantasy world kind of coming into the reality right right um, so like that was the the thinking of that is like finally these these two worlds are kind of clashing and coming together and you know you could yeah. just say well well it's the rebels fighting them and there's fire and, and bombs or whatever and I'm like well like right but the color theory behind that is still very intentional the matter of course yeah yeah no that it, it is it, it means something deeper as well yeah. um yeah that's it that's a, also an interesting interesting moment too when she gets to the like dead end in in the labyrinth and then mm-hmm. the wall opens up for her and she goes through and it closes back up. And I think that's another moment that's kind of hard to explain. Like I don't think she could jump over that wall with a with a with baby. A baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she didn't have so. her little her little fairy friend to guide her. No, I know. Which oh, ugh the that fairies. The little ugh. The transformation of the fairy at the beginning is one of my favorite parts because it's like, is her imagination changing this bug into a fairy? Is this actually a fairy who is recognizing how this girl sees the world and is adjusting themselves to fit her vision for what they should look like? Like, Right. It's just so juicy. It really is. It really is. And I love that. I, I love that. And I think that's a, a theme in a lot of del Toro movies where you, you can't – you can't be like, okay, this is definitely what happened. Yeah. You know, it's – he leaves a lot very open to interpretation and that's – and that's beautiful. And then ties into what you were saying of kind of like accepting other people's worlds. I think that's – that's a big part of his ethos. Yeah. Um, is like in, we all – we all bring – What worlds we've created to the table, you know what I mean? And we're, yeah, we shape it from our own will, but also from, you know, like the environment that we grow up in. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's impossible, like, not to live in this world and be influenced by other things. Yeah. Of course. And there's joy in that. Yeah. Unless you're Vidal, in which case you just outright reject any influence from anybody else, even though you're clearly (laughs) being influenced by fascism. Right. Exactly. Exactly. One um one thing I wrote down and one one uh thought I had was a lot of people I think compared or or talked about Pan's Labyrinth like a like a dark Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. um which I which I definitely get but I kind of got more Narnia from it um personally but I don't know maybe it's just because of Mr. Tumnus who's a fawn yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, that's, that's interesting to bring up, because also in those interviews, um, Del Toro mm-hmm. talks about the movie in terms of Red Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, interesting. Um, interesting. B- but at the same time, um, he, he talks about it predominantly using the terms of that fable, but does touch on Alice in Wonderland and does touch mm-hmm. a little bit on Narnia and whatnot. Yeah. Um, there's this fantastic interview between him and... And, um, oh my goodness, what is her name? She wrote the Inkheart trilogy. She was the one who did the novelization of Pan's Labyrinth. And it's... Oh! But um, <sighs> anyways... <name is>, <sighs> yeah, I, can, I can't remember. Let me... I think I can starts look with it the up C. Real quick. I always want to say it's Caroline, but it's not Caroline. Um, but so, you know, that's the thing is where you can see all these different fables in it. And I love the idea of, like, thinking about Narnia or Alice in Wonderland... Or these yeah. tales of liminal spaces, because for me, mm. the the land of fantasy, you know, that world is still yeah. with the exception of the pale man, th- that world is still very much in our world. Like she goes into the tree and this toad lives beneath the tree, you know right. And the pale man, you can see these beautiful murals on the wall of him coming into our world and eating children. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I mm-hmm. think And the pile of shoes. And the pile of <sighs> shoes of the children who failed to make it out. It's so tragic. Yeah. But Ugh, um so, so and then scary. the final, you know, confrontation is in the labyrinth, but it's a place that, you know, outside people come into with Vidal and the baby. Right. And so to me, like the fantasy world of Pan's Labyrinth. Is while it is a little bit separate, especially when you talk about the underworld and, and her father, the king and whatnot. Um, right. It still feels so intertwined mm-hmm. um and inseparable from our world. And instead it exists more in this beautiful liminal space. Yes. And you know, it's it's not Narnia, it's the wardrobe. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, no, that's a great that's a great point. And also uh ten points for using liminal um <laughs> oh I am obsessed with Liminal Space I, I actually I love I wrote liminal for space. this like video game RPG thing mm-hmm. called Liminous. Ah oh, so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like no. I'm obsessed with it. Also shout out to Tosamon who was spearheading that project for the Mass Art hacker art festival. Amazing. It was great. Anyways. Amazing. Yes. No liminal, liminal Space was definitely a great part of my theater training and theater theory training and yes, yes, you just brought me back. but um, but you're but you're totally right. That is that is w- what the fantasy of this world is. Um, it's it's very connected and that and that um, that sort of leads me to one one other question that I had for you because I was just reading an article by one Elena Fernandez Collins. From from a couple of years ago, but she was talking about magical realism and especially in the audio format. And she mentioned your podcast that you oh, hey. you have created and uh, and perform in the Far Meridian. And so I was mm-hmm. wondering uh, what you think of of kind of talking about this movie as a. Piece of magical realism. I know there's a lot of weight with that term, and there's kind of like Mm -hmm. a lot of different cultural connotations with magical realism. Um, But a lot of it, a lot of it, as far as I understand, um, comes from a lot of Latin American writers, and I imagine that Guillermo del Toro. I know he was very influenced by. Like Borges and um, mm, and Juan Rulfo with Pedro Páramo, which mm-hmm. I read in high school. Oh, and, nice! Oh, uh, I love that book. It was such a treat to read it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I personally would not consider Pan's Labyrinth to be magical realism. Uh huh. Um, but I definitely think the genre influenced it. Sure. And I think with magical realism is oftentimes it presents the magical as every day or, or Mm -hmm. not something really to be commented upon. Um, Interesting. It it just, it it just kind of is without, without being totally fantasy. Yeah. And in addition, there's definitely a, um, a response to colonialism within the genre. Yes, absolutely. um, Which is actually why lately, you know, for a long time I said The Far Meridian was kind of magical realism. Like that was the best fitting title sure. for the genre that I could kind sure. of allot it to. And now I, I think maybe like Slipstream or the mm-hmm. New Weird fits the Farmeridian Meridian a sure. little bit better because sure. while I'm definitely influenced by like anti colonial texts, I wouldn't necessarily say the Far Meridian is an anti colonial text. Sure, absolutely. Um. So, yeah, with with Pan's Labyrinth, I think that blend of fantasy and realism um, is really interesting and yeah. not something we see. But but because Ophelia is the only one who really experiences it, I right. would not call it magical realism, because right. not only does she, is she the only one who experiences it, but everyone else in her life pretty much outright rejects it and Mm. and they don't experience it themselves. Like, Vidal, he doesn't see the fawn. Right. You know? Yeah. Mercedes says, you know, oh, I don't, I used to believe in that, but now I don't. You know, fawns aren't to be trusted according to my mother. Um, And Carmen even, you know, she when throws she throws the mandrake root yeah. into the yeah. fire, yeah. Mm-hmm. so I think to me, because there is that very intentional rejection of fantasy, mm-hmm. this would not count as magical realism. Cool. That, so, that's. I mean, feel free to debate me on Twitter about this. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm super down because that's what I love about genre is because it's yeah. such a an amorphous thing at times. Like right. the discussion that comes from it, regardless on if people end up agreeing, is what makes genre discussion so interesting. Yes, absolutely and um and thank you thank you for sharing your perspective because you're much more knowledgeable about about the genre than i am but um but that that makes total sense to me um mm-hmm. in in terms of in terms of like like you said it was probably probably an influence but not yes. not not you know the the soul yeah the soul like genre cuz yeah. i mean it is like fantasy realism it's it yeah. is yeah it, well it's un. it's kind of unique it really like mm. i can't think of many other films especially not up until that point that are quite like it you know there's there's elements elements from from many other other kind of fantasy films mm-hmm. that i that i can see in it but but the, the relationship between fantasy and reality, I think, is unique in in this yeah. in this film and kind of leaves you not knowing what's real. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I and I, I always love that. I, I always love not knowing the answer. <laughs> I, I know that's a thing that frustrates a lot of people narratively, mm-hmm. but I love is not quite the, the right word, but kind of ambiguousness. Um, yeah and, and things being open to it that's something i find very satisfying um yeah same i mean when when all the discussions after inception came out of them oh being like, yeah. is it a dream is it not a dream and i'm like listen i'm glad you're getting a lot out of this but, yeah like <laughs> i think it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter to the character if it's yeah <laughs> yeah you know like i i feel like a, A lot of the ways people interact with film these days is so detail, world-building, analytical, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that some people have a hard time just emotionally going with the flow. Yeah. And I think Pan's Labyrinth, it kind of offers things for for both audiences, like the very emotional, but also the very analytical. Yeah. And... You know, I, I just remember having so many discussions about film with people and I and I would call them out. And I'll be honest, it was mostly Wyman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, just being like, you're treating this like a debate when I want a discussion. You yeah. Know? Like, I understand that you are super invested in all these world building things, but I am here for character and theme. And I, I want to have the same respect that I give to what you're passionate about when it comes to filmmaking. Right. You know, and that's really what Pan's labyrinth offers to people is that no matter what you're passionate about when it comes to film, it it has it there for you. It's true. It's really true. And you can, you can choose to, to like, to make a decision about what is real Mm -hmm. in, in the movie if you want to. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a, a really, a really great point really great point as well that there it does offer so much and and that's and that's unique that's really i i think i think del toro really has a unique gift in as a storyteller mm-hmm. um yeah in that way he's At least, just i don't know he has such a strong vision of his own but he's so respectful of what every artist has to bring yes. to the table yes i mean like doug an interview was like yeah, you know, he came up to me one day, and I was like, "I'm sorry that you, you know you haven't seen me, my friend, but it's yeah. because what you're doing is right." Yeah, <laughs> like if I don't have to talk to you, you're doing a good job. Yep, yep. <laughs> and that, and and I'm sure, as you know, as an actor, that can be—it's both gratifying and really frustrating <laughs> because yeah. because it's like, no, I can't be doing it right. <laughs> yeah, it's like no, but. Please give me some affirmations because I have a lot of self doubt. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. But okay. Please. Thank you. If you're not talking to me, you must be mad at me. Yeah. Can you be specific about what I'm doing, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you? Because I can do more of that. You yeah. Know, yeah. You just tell me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That leads me to one other thing that I wanted to make sure to mention, um, because mm-hmm. you were talking about how he has so much respect for for the other artists he works with, and also has such a great sense for the different um, kind of disciplines yeah. that go into that go into filmmaking. And so I, I had to mention the music in this, <gasps> yes, uh, in this movie because it is. I mean, that theme just burned in my brain. In, in the it's most so beautiful, beautiful haunting way um and like oh my gosh i was weeping last night at the end when mercedes is is humming the tune holding or holding ophelia in her arms or or yeah having her there it just ugh. it's so it's so it and it and it really is a beautiful embodiment of like very very like fairy tale kind of fantastical but also very deeply deeply sad like yeah it feels like a lullaby but a really really sad lullaby It does <laughs> and and I think that's what is so beautiful about the movie is that you know it it highlights all these different ways of storytelling you know through through books yeah. through oral storytelling even when you know Ophelia opens the book and it's just the red ink Mm, and immediately mm-hmm. as an audience, you, like, you know what has you just happened. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, with, with the music and and when Mercedes says, you know, I, I can hum you the melody, but I don't remember the words. Mm-hmm. And, it, and when she hums it, you realize the words really don't matter. Yeah. In this moment, like, words are very important in other contexts. But right now, all that matters is this beautiful music that she's passing on to Ophelia. And, yes. you know... Being Like we were saying, being in conversation with history, being in conversation with all of these mothers that came before her that wanted to comfort their children. Yeah, absolutely. And there is really something beautiful about Mercedes and, and Ophelia's mm-hmm. relationship. And and in many ways, she is more of the mother, maternal character mm-hmm. for Ophelia. Yeah. Um, well, and it's because Del Toro has said that um, Mercedes is kind of the older version of Ophelia they're the same mm. character at different points in their lives interesting yeah oh that makes and, a lot of sense Yeah, and I think that is beautiful where it's almost like when she is comforting Ophelia she's also comforting herself yeah I. and you do get the sense that she takes a great deal of I mean she cares about Ophelia I mean not just because she's a child who's been put in yeah. this but there is a deep connection between the two of them um, yeah yeah, it's really, it's really, really well done. Oh, I'm just like now feeling so emotional thinking about that lullaby. I, I know. With, I listen, know. I got a low alcohol tolerance. So yeah, yeah. I'm just extra feeling <laughs> it right now. <laughs> I know. Well, speaking of, um, I wanted to mention just a couple other Spanish wines. Um, yes. That, um, I'm trying to think what would be a good pairing for just just the music theme. Um, I feel like I feel like. Maybe like a Ribera del Duero, which so so the the primary grape of Spain, kind of it's what it's most known for, um probably most widely planted, is um is a grape called Tempranillo, and um and it's the grape of Rioja, which is the most prestigious region. Um and I love Riojas, I do. But uh, there's a region just to the west, kind of, yeah, mostly to the west of of Rioja called Ribera del Duero, mm-hmm. and it's also made from Tempranillo. But the but it 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 feels very different. I believe that Ribera del Duero is like much hotter than Rioja, relatively speaking. And so the wines, the the grapes, kind of they ripen a little bit more, and so the the mm. the wines are a little bit kind of. more intense a little more saturated but they can be really really beautiful Uh, red wines i know you're less of a red wine drinker but um listen every once in a while i go outside my comfort zone because who knows i love being surprised yeah and um and this is uh it's like it's it's a very velvety texture to the wine um and so there's something something about that that feels right for the lullaby um Mm -hmm. i also recommend if you are ever in spain and you know, are getting a drink, um, at a at a wine bar, either you, Eli, or listeners, uh, you, you, often they'll give you a choice between a Rioja and a Ribera del Duero, and like the Rioja will be two euro, and the Ribera <laughs> del Duero will be three euro. Splurge the extra euro to go for the Ribera del Duero. I think personally, um, nothing against Rioja. It's just I've found that like the the like wine on tap they have tends to the riberas tend to be better than the riojas just a little i did a lot of research when i was in spain this last time (laughs) such delicious research such delicious research just a little a little anecdote when um my husband and i went to spain and italy Mm -hmm. but spain first for our honeymoon and one of the places we went was granada and it was the first time i'd been to granada granada is amazing everybody should go to granada but we had been traveling all day, um, and I was, like, hadn't eaten anything. I was so hungry. I was so tired. I think it was, like, 4 in the afternoon or something, so, like, prime siesta time. Mm-hmm. So we found a place that was open, and and we, or, we ordered, like, a couple glasses of wine, thinking that we were going to be able to order food as well. But when we tried to order food, he was like, oh, no, our kitchen is closed right now. And I was like... Oh, no, but we'd already ordered the the wine. And so I was like, oh, but I'm so hungry, but I can't waste the wine. So we sat there. But then they brought us tapas because <gasps> in Granada, it, this doesn't happen everywhere in Spain, but in Granada, pretty much everywhere you go, if you order a drink, they will bring you a tapa. And so amazing. It was perfect. And I was like, oh, I love this country. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Like the kitchen is closed, but we'll still make you tapas. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. Like I would not have been able to handle that wine, tired on an empty stomach. I would have been sloshing around. Oh my god. I uh, I mean, I was not happy about it mm-hmm. until the tapas came. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was I was super super tired, super mm-hmm. super hangry. Um. But it all it all worked out. It all worked out, and you also kind of get. I mean, it depends on what you choose to do. Not everybody has to be like me, but like I just we just kind of got in the habit of like we'd have a glass of wine with every meal because mm-hmm. um, because when in when in Europe, yeah, um, they do as they do. Not like breakfast, but like lunch, we would yeah. we would have a glass of wine, um, and that leads me to one other. Spanish wine that I wanted to recommend specifically, which I think uh, you'd enjoy, Eli, which is another white wine. Yes. It is, and I've seen it, I've seen it around, but I haven't seen it in a while. They used to have it like at Whole Foods, I think is where I saw it. Um, but it's called Confeches, So C-A-N space F-E-I-X-E-S. And it's from, um, it's from Catalonia. So it's from, uh, you know, around Barcelona, and uh, it's like a it's like a field blend of a bunch of different grapes, but it is delicious, and it is like. Last time I saw it, I think it was about fifteen dollars a bottle, which is you know not not necessarily something that I buy every time, but uh, for for the for the quality that it is, it's a really good value, and I think that's that's a nice one kind of in the belief that everything goes goes well for Ophelia at the end and is reunited with her family um, when she's old enough to drink of course of Um, course (laughs) of course (laughs) I think she'd enjoy a nice confet because it's nice nice and and light and crisp and almost a little ethereal and I think I think she'd enjoy it I think that goes that I mean that pair's so beautifully you know yeah like i hope the so. warmth of that the terroir of that one grape going with yeah. the warmth of the lullaby and now we have this nice beautiful light and airy exactly uh, exactly wine going for ophelia and especially because like the the towers of the thrones that her parents sit on <laughs> yeah i know it just feels so light and airy and beautiful yeah yeah there's a lot of space in that in that world as well I think I think that's most of what I have. Um, there's one other one other wine I wrote down that I specific another Spanish wine that I wanted to recommend. It's a it's a red wine. I think this one would be a good one for like Mercedes, mm-hmm. um, and it's a Garnacha. Um, so Garnacha is probably the other main red grape of Spain besides Tempranillo, I would say. And yes, okay. So the producer I believe is. Berna Beleva, but on the on the label what it says is Camino de Nava Herreros. But it's another it's a it, it might be a red wine that you might like because it's a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Um and and it's like another kind of low sulfur added, not high tannin, a little bit higher acidity, so it has kind of a freshness to it, and it's and it's very pretty, like very pretty like light red fruit to it so it's not it's not like the tempranillos that are like quite big and um tannic it's much lighter and fresher um so that's writing down all of these suggestions and like yes this wisdom i'm gonna apply this i'm gonna enjoy myself absolutely we deserve it come on and so it's a freaking pandemic pandemic it's a (laughs) pan labyrinth yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry for that joke. It's okay. No, I, I, I made it first. Okay. Um, just less, just less well. <laughs> but um, one one other question I have, maybe you have some more insight. But so in Spanish, it's a laberinto del fauno. It's just, you know, the the fawn's labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And they decided in English and some other, other languages as well, I think like, maybe German or French or something, mm-hmm. they also reference pan. I, I don't know if you have any insight as to... I Because I think I saw something that del Toro was like, no, the fawn isn't pan. Um, yeah, I think that is a case of um, when you are distributing internationally, you don't always have control over how things are translated. Yeah. right. And I think yeah. that del Toro himself has said... That the faun is not pan because pan would be far too dangerous for mm. this little girl to be dealing with. Like, this yes. is just a fawn. This is not the god pan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who is far more uh, mischievous and, as uh, Del Toro said, dangerous in mythology. Yes. yes. But I think, honestly, I feel like in the translation, whoever did the translating, this is pure conjecture. Pan's yes. labyrinth just sounds a lot better than the Fawn's labyrinth. It does. It does because we recognize it as a proper name. Yeah. Even if we don't necessarily recognize it as the God pan. Right. I I, I think that it's just partially phonetics, partially it does kind of tickle the back of your brain because some people might think, Oh, like Peter Pan, like someone kind of mischievous or whatever. Right. And then the font is a sure, little mischievous. Sure. So I, I think that's why it was translated that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but for anyone who does know Greek mythology, going into the movie, they might have been a little disappointed that it wasn't yeah. really pan. Yeah. Um, however, on I was just going to say, however, it, you know, like you were saying earlier, there are some kind of almost Greek mythological themes in the movie. And so it does, even if it's not a direct con- connection, mm-hmm. it it kind of does at least hint at that. A little bit maybe? definitely, like the, the yeah. you know, like we we're saying, the ideas of inevitability and whatnot. Uh, the the other interesting thing with um, the fawn that I honestly did not know until I watched the behind the scenes, the fawn ages backwards. Oh, he's a so, little B- Benjamin Button guy, yeah. <laughs> like, as he first meets Ophelia, and he is very old, and his oh. movements are very rickety. And then by the time we get to the end, you can see he has this, like, auburn hair. He has very smooth movements and whatnot. Like, they had to track with the makeup and Doug Jones with his movement what age the phone is at when they were filming. Wow. I did not make that connection. I definitely thought, I mean, you know, when you first see him, he's, like, kind of, like, almost Mm -hmm. breaking himself out of, like, stone or something and then at the end he does seem very like fluid in his movement in that very in the very last yeah. scene um, When it but goes i hadn't back, thought about that it goes back to his monologue where he's saying like if you don't come back to the kingdom like everyone like me will die like we'll just fade mm. away you know mm. and, and at first you're like oh this is a guilt trip but then with that added context that her presence seems to be bringing him life and bringing the fairies right. to life and like and almost like helping them remember who they are, right. Um, I think that gives that whole motivation for the fawn a lot more context. You yeah, know? it does. it helps It helps him become more of a character rather than rather than just a kind of agent of her her choices and yeah. her life. Just like the the, the uh the, the plot and exposition deliverer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, who who has a personality but you don't really know what their stakes are in this in this game, really. Yeah. And, and I think you're also meant to be a little suspicious of the Fawn's intentions. Yeah. Um, and that that's another thing that's sort of left to interpretation a little yeah. bit. And then I think like one one final thing, because I know mm-hmm. we are kind of getting to our hey. time. I mean uh, I mean, I could talk about this movie forever. So long. Yeah. Like I have a yeah. feeling long after this recording I'll probably message you and be like, but Emma, I had this other thought. Yes. Um, but you <laughs> can I always think... record pickups. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but one of my favorite moments is at the very beginning when they're driving mm. to the the house and yeah. they stop on the side of the road cuz Carmen is is having some problems right. she's nauseous yeah right. she's got a baby on board yep. let yep. the woman do what she needs yep um but then Ophelia she finds the rock with the eye on it yeah. right and she and she goes over she places it into that little stone carving completing mm-hmm. the face and that's when the little stick bug fairy comes out yes. right yes and It's funny because, you know, a a lot of the interpretation, even Del Toro himself has said, like, that's when she's first able to see the fantasy world. Right. And for me, who chooses to believe that the fantasy is real, that she is the daughter of the king of the underworld. Yes. um, To me, that is the moment that the fantasy world can see her. Mm, And because they've been searching for her soul for years, they had never been able to find her. You know, these portals are closing and whatnot. Yeah. And for me like that's that's finally when we as an adult can see you know like the 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 trust and belief of a kid. You right. know, of like that that there is still magic, you know, there is this very precious daughter still in the world and we just need to bring her home. Yeah. Yeah, we just have to be open to seeing it. Mm-hmm. and that's beautiful. Yeah, I think that's a that's a nice note to end upon. Um even if we could keep talking about this movie for forever. Um and I'm sure we will continue continue to talk about it and think about it. Um there's so it's so rich. It's such a rich mm-hmm. film. And uh, and so thank you so much for for suggesting it and for coming uh, on pairing for the first of hopefully not the last time. And yes, please. Thank you for having me. Of like this course. has been such a treat getting to talk about a wonderful movie, getting to learn about wine from you. Like I've been taking notes. Oh my gosh. You're so you're so diligent. Um, well, that's my that's my whole that's my whole idea behind the podcast. is It's entirely selfish. I just want to <laughs> I just want to talk about fun pieces of art that I like and uh, and and talk about wine along the way as well, um, because I also believe, uh, like Guillermo del Toro, that things should be enjoyed together. that's my (laughs) that's my very uh kind of stretch attempt to (laughs) draw it draw these themes together but before we before we sign off um Eli would you like to I've mentioned a couple things but would you like to plug any of the many things that you are a part of Uh, oh my gosh I I've done so many things at this point. Um, Definitely, so I will, am, I will plug for you the Far Meridian. I, we mentioned it before, but um, yeah. But everyone, if you have not, you should listen to the Far Meridian. It is lovely and delightful. Yeah, uh, we are currently still on hiatus, uh, trying to work during this pandemic. I know it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I and I will be very blunt. I have been struggling with creativity um, this whole me time. Me too. So me too. Um but you know, I will say season three is still planned. It Great. will come out at some point. Great. Um, but yeah, and I and I did um, make a little foray into Unseen. Um, yes. Which Emma you were in. And uh, I was please know in. that I did um text one of the writers, one Sarah Shackett, about how our characters could possibly meet because yes. I may be a professional, but I'm also a fangirl. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I I I also I don't know I don't know to what extent because they haven't told me anything about their plans for mm-hmm. the future. Um but I really hope that some of our characters can meet because because that just would be super exciting.
1: That would Not be to so. not to
0: give too much away, but I think I think if our characters met it would be <laughs> It would be you. Oh man, yeah, <laughs> it would probably be a mess in the best possible way. Um, yes, But yeah, absolutely. so I guess plugging unseen, which might be a given with us two talking to each other, we've yeah. both been in it. But you know, I'm not actually sure that I've plugged unseen on pairing yet because i I was also taking a hiatus on pairing. Uh, oh, when unseen came out, so. So well, this if you is a like urban fantasy, folks, yeah, uh, I definitely <laughs> recommend Unseen. Yeah, <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I've I've been moonlighting with uh, the Marsfall team. If you like sci-fi, oh, nice. as both a writer and an actor, so that's been exciting. Um, and then I, I guess like my legacy work really is is with Ars Paradoxica. If you yeah. like sci-fi, like you know, post World War II, Cold War era stuff. Um, and, I've, and the, I've definitely plugged ours Paradoxica before, but this is a good reminder to everybody listening that if you haven't listened yet, you should listen to it because it's amazing. Yeah, It's so good. But yeah, yeah. I, I mostly just moonlight on other projects at this point. I mean, you know, from, from The Bright Sessions to Super Ordinary to Our Fair City to stuff I'm definitely forgetting and I'm so sorry if I've worked with you and I've forgotten. I've got um, I've gotten to the point where at this point I sim- similarly I've done so many like little cameos in so many different shows mm-hmm. that I I, I I I just forget about some of them and I feel terrible. But it's not because I don't love them. It's just yeah. it's a lot to but, remember. Exactly. So I guess you know um like if you want to know what I'm doing, you can follow me on Twitter at Eli Lisbeth, because I go by many different names in many different contexts. Yes. Um, and then I guess, <laughs> honestly, just, like, follow um, the people that I've worked with. You know, obviously, Emma, um, yeah. one of my really longtime collaborators, um, Danielle Shamaya, is so talented, and she's doing this Jane Austen RPG on, on Twitch. What?! I wish I could remember I mean, the name, but it I mean is to see that. so good. Uh, she's yes. at DT Cam Jansen. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is a, a former guest of pairing as well. She was <gasps> right. She uh, talked about on, Star Wars, right? Yep. She was uh, our, our Rise of Skywalker guest. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. She has incredible thoughts about everything. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, honestly, like if if the Far Meridian is good, it is because of Danielle and one um, Misha Stanton, because they just they they take what my brain throws up and they make it into something beautiful. So don't sell yourself short, um, because uh, it you are also brilliant and and you. a brilliant mind behind it. So yeah. just just um, want to be like Del Toro and like credit the incredible minds I work with. You know I what know. I mean? Yes. bringing it back yes exactly <laughs> basically we're both just like Guillermo del Toro <laughs> yeah I mean like not to humble brag or anything yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well this has been such a delight um and I I have so many thoughts going through my head and that's what I love um about having these conversations so thank you so much for being here and until next time cheers cheers <laughs> clink Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Scherzarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw, and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Scherzarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram, at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, Via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreoncom pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Also, check out our merch store on our website at thepairingpodcastcom merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.